Tell me a little bit about the five aggregates. Well, I mean, I don't know exactly what to say. So, um, as I said, I watched uh, quite a lot of your videos and basically talking about how the five aggregates are not uh, the self and there is no essence in the five aggregates. And uh, to me, I find this especially helpful with uh, thoughts because it's quite easy to, to have like a thought pop up in your mind and you take it seriously and it brings you down. But then if you, if you remember that you are not this thought, that in fact you can just stop this thought uh, right in, in its tracks and uh, maybe instead think about nothing or think about something good. Um, to me, that's, that's where the, the five aggregates uh, are most helpful. All right. Uh it appears that the original teachings about the five uh, aggregates uh, were for students who were especially slow and uh, reluctant to drop their confirmational bias about deep dark past and long distance futures because yes. the people of the Buddha's time were more or less all eternalist and had been for probably about 300 years or so. Um, that it, uh, it looks like that um, rebirth and reincarnation, actually we can pinpoint a time of about 800 BC when the Rig Veda started to put that stuff together and that it was actually a political ploy or propaganda of how the Brahmins could control so that they could get money. In other words, if they can get the, the farmer to do a, uh, an animal sacrifice to kill a goat, after the goat is killed and blessed and blah, 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 they get the goat. Yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, yes. maybe one question I have about that is why do you think then that it's so prominent in the story of the uh, awakening of the Buddha? You know, like the first thing he does is uh, recollect his past life, then like see how beings uh, die and then reappear in some other realms. And then he There discovers... are two possibilities for that kind of stuff. Uh, both of them more or less Hindu. And one of them is, is that to get people to put the Buddha way up high, to give him a magical birth, right? Just like all of the other deities yeah. in all the other religions, right? Yes. A, mag a magical birth is uh, uh, one of the ways to get really, really stupid, ignorant people in line. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the other is to prove the existence of comma and rebirth. Okay, so one is putting the Buddha way up high because of his comma and rebirth. So those are the two issues that are there. That in fact, in that early time that we were talking about, about 800 BC, the, it seems that uh, the Brahmins were challenged 
why should the Brahmins, a big Brahmin family actually, why should the Brahmins be the only priest? Why should the Brahmins be doing all of the ceremonies, writing all of the magical language and saying all the magical words to get all the magical property away from the stupid people? Yeah. And their answer was, is that, oh, well, it's that way because we were born Brahmins and you were not. You're just being jealous. It is obviously true that the Brahmins do all of these ceremonies and we sit back and do nothing. You know, we just let you guys uh, come to us when you're in trouble and we get your goods for it. Okay, so you could think of that Brahmanism was actually the original psychotherapy. And so the the next point is, is that we are born Brahmins because we were good in the past. And you were not born Brahmin. You were born as an ordinary person because you were not as good as us in your past. And that's the birth of that belief. It was an excuse for maintaining power. Oh, we're the Brahmins because we were born Brahmins. And you're not a Brahmin because you were not good enough to be born Brahmin because you had been a naughty boy. <laughs> in the past and so uh this is where the whole idea of rebirth or actually the word correctly here would be reincarnation this is where reincarnation got started in uh let us say concert or cahoots with the belief in karma you do a good action you'll get a good result you do a bad action you'll get a, uh, a bad result now in one of the suttas, the Buddha talks about, in fact, it's 117 in the Majjhima Nikaya, the Great Forty, is where he talks about wrong view. And this wrong view that he's talking about is basically a world view. And there is a wrong world view and a kind of an ordinary right view. And these can be broken down into a very simple statement of wrong view is I can do anything I want and get away with it yeah this is the belief of every child especially those who have been nurtured too long and not held accountable and they grow up with the whole idea is that i can get away with it in fact the best example on planet earth right now are the twins uh vladimir putin and donald trump (laughs) yeah yeah they think that they could get away with it oh yeah an ordinary right view is, oh, no, you can't. Or another way of saying it is, oh, no, we can't. But, oh, no, you can't get away with it. We've got rules, you know. We've got, and the rule is you do a good action, you get a good result. And if you do a bad action, you'll get a bad result. And the kids, they look around and they say, no, sometimes I can get away with it. <laughs> yes. And in fact, good criminals do get away with it. They're smart enough to get away with it because, after all, the only people who become a cop are the people who have the confirmation bias that, oh, no, you can't get away with it, but they're not particularly smart. So it depends upon your intelligence as to whether you get away with it or not. And it depends upon what the rule is and other things like that. But a hard and fast rule 
has to have some magic in it. Oh, no, you do a good action, you're bound to get someday a good result. And if you do a bad action, you're bound someday to get a bad result. That's why you're not born as a Brahmin. And so that's the ordinary right view is you can't get away with it. An ordinary wrong view is I can get away with it. I can do anything I want. I can hurt as many people as I want, and I won't suffer any consequences. Yeah. Right? Okay. Both of those are actually dukkha-laden. The kid who thinks he could get away with it because he did one time will now do it in a stupid way and will get caught. Or the thief that's uh, that's capable of getting away with it, he winds up uh, not enjoying the life. But in fact, he's uh, being hunted down. He's got it. Brewster's got his millions. What is he going to do with it? He's got to hide it. (laughs) Okay. Hadn't gotten caught yet. So uh, both ordinary right view and uh, ordinary wrong view is unsatisfying but the idea is is that uh uh in the ordinary right view the way i talk about it is is that oh no you can't get away with it we're going to hire the cops oh no you can't get away with it we're going to have teachers and and um uh, aunts and uncles and mommy and daddy are going to stand there and watch you and if that's not enough, we're going to hire a priest and a preacher. They're going to buy. They're going to get a magic camera that's going to watch. <laughs> yeah. And so this is the whole idea that it becomes <clears throat> eternalism. Eternalism means that over and over and over again, you still have actions that still need results, and it keeps going that way. On and on and on and on and on. Is there a way out of that? On and on and on and on. And when they say yes, finally, after so many lives of doing uh, good things and getting enough good results, eventually I'll have enough merit that I can be born like the Buddha too, or maybe not even at all. Right? That's what we mean by semi eternalism. But you got to put in lives and lives and lives of a whole lot of effort. Yeah. Why is that? Oh, it's because you also have to pay the Brahmins. That's how you make good merit, is by building big temples. That's why India is so full of big temples. (laughs) It's because people were believing what the Brahmins told them. And so that got set in to the mindset of all of the people in the time of the Buddha. And so there are several teachings. Now it's not so hard. I can basically talk someone out of their eternalism beliefs in about an hour. But I also have a lot of people that can um, get really angry and post really mean comments without ever bothering to listen to what's being said. It's just so against their confirmation bias. Yes. I mean, their belief at rebirth and reincarnation. I think most Buddhists would be shocked. Pardon? I think that most Buddhists would be shocked by the, uh, the statement that uh, there is no rebirth. Well, 
I mean, I don't of them. go so far. Let's clean that up. I don't say that there is no rebirth, but I would say that it's a pretty ridiculous idea. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know for sure. No, 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 of course. no exactly. Sure. No one knows for sure. The next point about it being ridiculous is because what evidence do you have? Not a lot. Not a lot. Only uh, some children telling stories yes. that they were told to tell. Yeah, I mean that's, that's the, all they've got. the best. They yes, end. the best proof they have is children, like a few handpicked children remembering what happened in uh, well, in the past life. But what are they remembering? Are they remembering something that they weren't told? Did they dream it up on their own, or yes. did they get coached into it? It's hard to okay. say. Have you ever heard of the name Madeleine Albright? No, never. During the uh, uh, during the nineties, she was the uh, uh, attorney general under Clinton. And so, what happened in her uh, before that? She was in Miami, Florida, and big, big news came out about what she was doing in the 1970s when she was the attorney general there in Miami. And what had happened was, is that several adult women in their 20s got somehow to know each other and started putting together that the memories that they had about being raped were not real memories. It didn't really happen. They just went along because they were told to, because Madeleine Albright wanted to really crack down on child pornography. And so uh, the social workers would start questioning little girls and getting them convinced <coughs> to tell these stories that put aunt, uncles, grandfathers, and other people in prison for no reason at all other than wow. the confirmation bias. And then that started coming out in the 1990s. Okay, how close is that to memories of reincarnation? Yeah. Because these girls were 13, 12, that age. When this was uh, supposed to happen, or that was the age they were when they were convinced to turn Uncle Bob in. So that's what a confirmation bias is, is that we are convinced that things are true without any evidence at all other than hearsay. Yeah. And that's all you've got for reincarnation or rebirth is hearsay. And um, what would you say to the argument that uh, maybe it's like a motivation to practice? Because if you think, okay, like in a few Actually, years, I'll be in my coffin. To not yeah. practice. You think so? Oh, because you can practice later. Because I can practice later. I got all the time but, in the world. But what, what, what about uh, the idea that, you know, like uh, our time on this earth is not so long. Uh, pretty soon I'll be in my coffin and then it will be like uh, the traditional Nibbana because like if, when you take the, the belief in rebirth, what is the goal? The goal is to escape. How do you want to go? How, uh, are you going to, to be ultra-orthodox or just orthodox? Because you're right, it's the orthodox. But ultra-orthodox? No, in the time of the Buddha, the word Nibbana meant nothing but cool. Yes. And using two examples. One is when a an animal becomes domesticated, then they're chill. Another one was when food comes right out of the fire, it's too hot to eat, you need yeah. to let it nibbana. 
The same thing is with the mind. Get the heat out of the mind and let it chill. Let it cool off. That's what Nibbana meant in the time of the Buddha. Yeah. But most people can only see that that's going to happen to them after they're in the moldy grave. Then they will chill. That's yes. Nibbana. And, and so in if fact, you... that's the highest peace. Yeah. But, but the thing is, like, if there is no rebirth, then you will get that highest peace. No matter what you do, you can like I'm not practice now or you're yeah. going back to there is no rebirth. Let's make sure yeah. that you don't know. I don't know. Of course, I don't know. Okay. I have not only mind. that, but let's stay with the point that it is irrelevant because oh, it yeah. doesn't have anything to do with how you live your life now. Exactly. No. No, I'm uh, I'm playing devil's advocate. I'm not. This is not really my I opinion. Know, these are, yeah, I these know, are things and I've I heard. appreciate it. <laughs> Here comes the devil. I'm coming for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The devil of reality. Yes, I mean I, I know because I've listened to uh, to your videos. I've read Buddha Dasa's books, and I know that the answer is right now. It's the practice right now. I'm not interested in that anymore. It doesn't matter to me. But I know, unfortunately, that there are so many people, because I've read these things online, that make these points. Like, oh, what's the point? Because, the, uh, and, and it's hard, I think, to reach these people. Whereas I know for a fact that you, you, you can experience... I'm not the, the even Ivana, trying yeah. to. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't reach <laughs> at all. I'm yes. tired of it. Okay. I'm tired of, of grabbing and reaching and whatnot like that. If someone reaches out to me because they want to hear the Dhamma, then I'll respond. Yes. Okay. I'm a little slippery, but I'll respond. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and so we're making kind of sure uh, in this place right now is, is that it is irrelevant because we don't know. No. Anything that you don't know is irrelevant until you do know it and then it becomes relevant. But what we do know is that uh, what the Buddha said to uh, Sati, you know, in that sutta, uh, that uh, consciousness is dependently arisen. That is something you can experience. Yeah. Uh -huh. Sati, son of a fisherman. Good. Yeah. You got Sati. Yeah. All right. Yes. I mean, that, that, I mean, this is something you can experience. And so uh, this can dispel the notion that uh, there is this consciousness that's like, even in this life, there is no mm -hmm. such thing. So why, why would you think about like past life and next life when in this moment, there is, well, it's not the same like... Uh, wait a minute, what the Buddha teaches is, is that consciousness whichever definition that we have of it, and I've got two solid uses of the word consciousness, and also uh, in Pali the word vinya is used, and it's used exactly the same two ways, and so we'll talk about that for a moment later. However, the important point is, no matter which of the two kinds of consciousness it is, they're dependently arising. Yes. In this, in that sutta, the consciousness is when you see it, when a sight that is a physical object with light gets to the eye and it contacts the eye, then the eye becomes conscious of that sight. 
But yeah. if there is no eye, if there is no sight to be seen, if there is only full darkness, then there is nothing to be conscious of. So consciousness, eye consciousness, doesn't exist. The same thing is with sound, that unless you hear something, the hearing is actually the contact of the sound waves themselves contacting the ear, making hair move in a liquid, and that's connected to the neurons that go into the brain. So if there is no sound, then there is no consciousness of a sound. That's what the word is all about. So it's always dependently arising. That sutta is what gave uh, many people the idea who still want to cling to rebirth, uh, reincarnation, sorry. The difference between rebirth and reincarnation is, is that it's consciousness that is reborn in reincarnation. And in rebirth that is believed by many Buddhists, there is no consciousness to be reborn. Well, if it's not me that's being reborn, then why should I give a flying rip about rebirth? <laughs> you can see how selfish is the whole point is. Oh, it's not that re does rebirth or not rebirth exist or not. It is me <laughs> who is being reborn yeah. or not. Okay. And uh, one of the reasons why the belief is so delicious and it's so widespread, and in fact, we, we have really solid evidence with another religion, which I'll get to, but people are afraid to die. They don't want to die. They see their friends die. They don't know what to do with it. Imagine what it was like way back in really primitive times when humans became conscious. You see, a dog will walk by his best friend's uh, dog dead and they won't do much pining. They'll do some sniffing and then they'll walk away. Dogs don't bury dogs. No. Not in great ceremony. They don't have any ceremony at all. Why? Because that's not part of their fear package. Their fear of dying is right here, right now. If the wolf comes, the dog's gonna be afraid. But seeing a dead dog there, the dog is not going to necessarily be afraid. It's going to sniff it and see if he can eat it. <laughs> yeah. So humans are different because when we see a dead human, we think immediately of me dying. Yeah. That's why funerals have become such a big moneymaker. Oh, we make a lot of money and we have been making a whole lot of money a whole long time all the way back to the time of the Buddha. In fact, at, the, at that time, the reasons why the Brahmins were so rich is because they owned all the land because they required that as payment for a proper funeral. Guess what? They still do that at Varanasi. I've been to those funerals. Wow. And they want land, lots of land. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's a scam. It's a trap. People are afraid to die. This is part of the reason why the Buddha teaches to become fearless. If you're not afraid of death, then you don't have to have any beliefs much about it because you really don't know and you can stay neutral yeah. because we really don't know anything except for one thing we do know and that is since there is absolutely no evidence 
of an afterlife, why should we give a flying rip? Yeah. Why not go with the evidence that there is none? Because we got a whole lot of evidence that there is none. Houdini set up a whole lot of evidence. Back in um, from about the 1840s until the 1930s, in about a 90-year, uh, actually more than 90, maybe a 100-year period of time, seances were very popular. Do you know what a seance is? Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I know, yeah. Yeah, to contact okay. the dead, right? Right. Guess yeah. what? How many seances, real ones, do you have anymore? Uh, not many. <laughs> like, so uh, kids, kids who want to well, play. Why were they, they even had them in the White House. Really? Wow. Yeah. Lincoln had, because he had, he lost a son. So let's have a seance, okay? Houdini, who was a master magician, sleight of hand magic, could take handcuffs off, could uh, take the chain around his neck and get it up on his chin and then get it up on his forehead, and then you get it behind, which meant now all the chains fall right off of him. Okay, he did underwater tricks and all kinds of things, and so he knew the art of prestidigitation very well. But he was also very much like myself, really curious about what real magic was real. And so he started going to seances, and every one of them he exposed. Hmm. Big newspaper headlines and all of that kind of stuff there. I don't remember their names, but there were two sisters who were very good at it. And he finally caught them when he recognized that when one of the women got up and walked around in the room that he saw her in, she was barefoot. But when she sat back down, she put her shoes back on. It's pretty strange, isn't it? You can catch that. <laughs> Yeah. Most people, they go barefoot when they're sitting and they'll put their shoes on when they get up to walk around. But this woman was different. What was happening was, was that the right shoe was connected under the floor. Wow. <laughs> and so she could lift her feet up and move the wires back and forth to create all kinds of things in the room. <laughs> okay. God. And because that stuff was exposed in the 1930s and people were put in jail and that kind of stuff, because they were making a lot of money off of it, it just stopped. Yeah, you of course. You don't see any of them anymore. No. They got caught at it. Maybe, <laughs> maybe evangelical Christian preachers are going to get caught at it too, all in a group. But mostly they just get caught one at a time with either their hands in the panties or in the plate. One or the other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's go now and talk about the five aggregates. Yes. Because anyone who sits down and begins to answer questions correctly and look at things can say for sure that who I really am is not the body. No, no, definitely. Because at three years old, I was different than I was at nine, and when I was at 21, and when I was at 35, and when I was at 50, and when I was at 75, it's all different. Okay, So the body cannot be, and now they know for sure that uh, all of the molecules, or basically the first way is all of the cells that are in your body now will all be dead and replaced in the next seven years. 
They didn't used to think that. They used to think that a child by the time of five, his mind was already set. No, those neurons live and die. Nothing is set. We just keep training the, the neurons to act the way that the old ones were operating. That was what's going on. So yeah. there's not one cell in your body that's more than about seven years old. You're completely changed. Everything about you, all your cells are dead, all of the molecules, a lot of the water that you piss out is not drank. It's manufactured in the process of combining the food and getting the carbon out of it and forming water with uh, oxygen and out you go with it. Okay, so there's a whole lot of stuff in the body that's not you at all. And so that's one of the trainings is, is to recognize that you are not the body. But look how many industries are built on the belief that people have the confirmational bias. I am the body. It sneaks up. It's easy. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's big look, money. The fashion industry. The lipstick and cosmetic industry, the perfume industry, Gucci, <laughs> Prada, it's all vanity. It's all about I, me, and mine. Even clothing determines who you are. Yeah. And in fact, uh, there's a concept called the clothes make the man that's not as important as it was many, many years ago. But everybody had to dress the scene in the old days so if you're a businessman you better dress like a businessman now that's not so much elon musk will break that rule yeah there's another one um uh vladimir uh uh putin he wears a coat and tie all straightened up how does vladimir L uh, Zelensky, the president of ukraine, ukraine. does he dress not a smart casually in yeah. an army green t-shirt he's not fitting the role right he's not dressed like a, a like all of the other politicians okay the same thing is true of the guy who's running for uh senator in uh pennsylvania he doesn't wear the traditional suit there's the whole idea about the clothes make the man is beginning finally to fall apart yeah but the clothes make the man actually is i am the clothes i wear yeah they define me yeah they define who i am it defines the body let's look at some more industries how about the sports industry yeah and how about the uh wake out uh, the workout industry and uh, uh fitness centers all over i am the body Yes. It is me who is running on this treadmill. Exactly, and my body has to be fit because then I will, I will look good. Yeah. Right, so I will look good so that I will be a chick magnet. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or better still, I will look good because I was told to look good. That's expected yeah. of me. There's the rules. And in fact, a lot of the rules that we have reinforce our confirmational bias about I am the body. And if people can understand that one, that's the thread that is pulled. When people recognize, no, I'm not the body, I'm something else. Well, let's go a little bit deeper into it. Are you the feelings? 
sometimes anger, sometimes sadness. And when they and in our society, we say, I am sad, I am angry, I am frustrated. But it's not me, there's frustration. It's just there is frustration. At best, I am the one who sees the frustration. I'm the observer here. Yeah. But there's a little bit further that we can look at it, and that is, is that no self is necessary, just observation. We can have observation without an observer, just like we can have walking without a walker. You've heard that one. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. All right. So I am the observer is where most people kind of the intermediate point, which would say then that rebirth is the intermediate point between reincarnation and not giving a flip. Okay. Yes. Just don't care. And that's that's where a lot of people get mixed up because they think that, oh, if I believe and reincarnation and you laugh at me, that means you believe that reincarnation doesn't exist. But nobody really knows. No, no. nobody knows. But what we do know is whatever it is that is reborn, it is not the body. It's not sure resurrected. Not. That's what that's yeah. where a lot of people. In fact, that's the whole Muslim religion is founded upon that. That's why they love to cut up bodies and send the penis in that direction and the arms and legs and whatnot like that, because they have the, the, the belief is, is that the body is going to heaven. I really am the body. That's part and parcel of Islam. Yeah. They have a lot of rules and rituals about it. The body's got to be buried within 24 hours of death. Actually, they have it on the same day. It's got to wow. be buried the same day unless it's at night. And then he's born buried the next morning. Got to do it. Otherwise, that body is not going to get to the right destination. You can't leave them out on the slab, on the slab like they do in the morgue. They got to bury the darn thing. Okay. Yeah. Otherwise, it won't get to its proper destination. So there's a lot of beliefs about the body. We grew up in a society that believes in I am the body and supports industries like the clothing industry, the medical profession, the sports industries, the uh, cosmetics and all of that is just built into our society. And we as children are not wise enough to look up and say, mommy. Why do you put that lipstick on? It's expensive and you don't look any different. <laughs> you look worse. <laughs> you look worse with that. Not only that, but you get it all over my arm when you kiss me. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so uh, we go then to the feelings. I am not my feelings. I am not the anger. The anger is there, but it's not me. No one is going to be permanently angry all the time. And yet the whole idea of a soul is something that's the essence. Yeah. Permanent. Always there. Lasting. It endures. Okay. Then, in fact, that's one of the problems of Buddhism being translated into English is that it would have been more correct for it to say. No soul, because that's more correct. In the sense that we can define soul, we can't define self very much. I mean, self driving the car now has a self. 
We could give it a name, a Tesla, right? It's got self-driving, all kinds of words, uh, uh, all kinds of uses for the word self. So we can't say that there is no such thing one way or the other. What we can say, though, is, is that there is selfishness. We can see it in ourselves sometimes and see it in others often. <laughs> so there is a such a thing as selfishness, but inherent existence is subject to investigation. So Nagarjuna uses the example of a chariot, but we can use the example of a motorbike or a PC or a chair or anything. So Nagarjuna asked permission of the king, can I, uh, let us say, order your people around to rearrange this? And so he said, take the wheels off and put them over there. Actually take the spokes out and the hub out. Take the basket apart. Take the ridge pole and throw it over that way. Where's the chariot? The king has to recognize the chariot's in his mind. Yeah. The chariot doesn't actually exist until the parts of it are rearranged into his mental concept of what a chariot is. Okay? That there is no such thing inherent as chariot. It's just a mental concept that's been manufactured. Same thing with an automobile. There's no such thing inherently as an automobile. Is made up of parts. Same thing with the body. There's no where if there is a soul, where is it? Is it at the tip of your nose? Is it on the third eye? Is it between your bowel movement place and the other place? <laughs> where is it? Is it on the left scrotum or the right scrotum? How about the toenails? Who is the self? Where is me? And when the feelings come and go and come and go and come and go, where am I? Am I moving? No, you're a soul. You're supposed to stay put. I mean, what is it that's, that can survive death? It's so powerful to survive death, but it's not powerful enough to handle the feeling. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, that's true. Soul. Yeah, there's nothing much to the soul. But the word is misconstrued. I think that, in fact, to be honest with you, I think it was intentionally mistranslated because these were Christians. Yes. You can't go around saying there's no soul. That's a dead set against Christianity. Yeah, I think so, because when you look at the first sutta, when the, the Buddha talks about it, it's quite clear that he's talking about a soul. Like it's like everlasting, the essence that you can control it and everything. It's not like this... Um, like everyday mundane self word that we use in in everyday language. Have you ever heard of the name Mahatma Gandhi? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Look so at the, the, the word the Indian... Mahatma. Break it apart and you'll see Maha Atta. Yeah, Atta, yeah. Maha Atta. That soul. So Anatta is not a soul, which means nothing is permanent. The Buddha taught everything is temporary. And Nietzsche what to Sankara. What to Vaya Domino, etc. The whole point is, is that uh, we have a confirmation bias that I am who I am. And that's all I am. 
You know, every one of us sings the Popeye the Sailor Man song. <laughs> I am. And the reality is, is that, no, you're just a bunch of constituent parts that happen to be put together in a particular configuration right now. And that configuration is going to be changing very quickly over a short period of time. And it can change in the direction that you want it to change if you're aware that you can change and you're aware that this is the time to change. Otherwise, we have the belief that there is a soul. So yeah. if consciousness is a dependently arisen, if the body for sure is not a soul, if our feelings are all over the place and they're not a soul, then the next two things would be uh, perception and memory. But you're not who your memories are. You don't just remember and there you are, or you were always there. All you have to do is remember that you're there because our memories are spotty. They're not very good. We don't take information in well, we don't organize it well, and we don't put it back out very well. That's the problem, is that yeah. our memories are really shoddy. Good example, by the way, is a movie that's either on film or on um, uh, your hard drive, a video. Guess what? Your computer knows that video, that movie, much better than you do. You don't remember all the dialogue. You don't remember all of the music. You can't play any of that music. Oh, you no. don't even remember it frame by frame. I don't even remember the characters' names. So. <laughs> yes, and all of that computer can memory. So the, the computer memory is much better than human. Yeah. But we don't think of the memory of the computer as a self. No. Because we could wipe all of that whole file out and 10,000 other files and put new files on. We got, I mean, you can take Windows off and put Linux on. So there's no inherent self as far as software. And mm -hmm. not only that, but if the hard drive goes bad, you can change that. You can change out the memory and put in a new processor. You can change the screen. You can change the keyboard. There's nothing on a laptop. Yes. And then pretty soon you have a new PC. I mean, this is a, how it is with my PC because I, I built it myself. And like over the last six, seven years, I've changed this and that. And it's like 100% of the PC is different. But there was no point where it was a completely different PC. It's just changed slowly over the last six, seven years to the right. point where nothing is the same as when I bought it the first time. <laughs> you remind me of the story of my grandfather's uh, hand axe, a hatchet. Okay, he's had that same hatchet almost all his life. He got it in his 20s and he's in his 80s and it's the same hatchet. But he does remember that he broke the handle a couple of times and then he broke the head. <laughs> he used the, the, the new handle to put on the new head and it's still the same hand axe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's the way that we think about things is, is that we, we see a connection that doesn't really exist until we investigate. So when we investigate our memories, we can figure out that they're put as shoddy. And not only that, but we tend to remember the wrong things that would be much better to remember the right thing at the right time rather than remembering the wrong thing. An example of that would be a mother fussing at her child. Yakety, 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 yak, and the child is in tears, and mother gets even more angry, and is uh, uh, the child is even more afraid. Walk up to that lady and ask her, 
would you treat a policeman this way? What would a policeman behave like if you talked to him the way you're talking to your daughter? Yeah, <laughs> she wouldn't. <laughs> no, because she has at that level a little fear and situational awareness. But she doesn't have that situational awareness. She's not thinking. She's not looking. She's just lost her mind because of, uh, she feels safe. She can get away with treating her daughter that way. But then when she's in front of the cops, she recognizes very quickly she's not going to be able to get away with it. <laughs> All right. So the memories that we have are dependently arising also. And one of the ways that I teach is, is that in the present moment, starting now, starting uh, with correct practice, we begin to add new wholesome memories on top of the old pile of old memories. So that when a situation comes up, we're more likely to deal with it with the new data than with the really, really ancient data if we're doing that. But if we keep stirring our old pot, all this is all me in there, then you're more than likely going to take up a memory that happened when you were two or three years old because they were really powerful back then. You didn't have so many. Rather yeah. than taking a new wholesome memory off the top of the deck. Okay. Yeah. But you have to recognize the, the bad old memory and just stop uh, reenacting it in your mind. Like as soon as you notice it, you have to like let go. It's not self, it's not me, it's not my soul. Not Out me. you go, this and then actually me. I'm good. This is not who I am. I yeah. can make a change right now if I can remember to think that way. You just need the small effort. It's like a small dose of effort to get rid of it and replace it with something wholesome. And if you do, then you feel you're good for right. however long it can last. All right. Well, I must yeah. mention then about uh, part of the Eightfold Noble Path is right noble effort. Yeah. Right, noble effort is the very least amount of effort necessary to actually get the job done. Sometimes just a little nudge is all it takes. The example that I'm thinking about is the police car is chasing this dude down the highway and all of the police in town are all in a fritter about it. They've even got a helicopter or something out there. And all the policeman has to do is to come up to the back of that other car that he's trying to chase and nudge it. Just give it a little nudge, and that guy's going to be spinning all over the road. Okay, that's the way that we need to think about the right effort is just a nudge in the right place at the right time to change the mind out of an unwholesome pattern into a wholesome pattern which basically means it spins around and stops. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so uh, in, in that way, we're recognizing that we're not our memory system. So the last one on the list then is the fifth aggregate is perception. Now, uh, perception actually means, if you look at the word to perceive or to precognize, or even to recognize or to recognize something. In other words, we make an understanding over out of what we see, that we get curious sometimes of what's going on over there, and we try to put it together with what we know to figure out what's happening, okay? 
when we do figure out what's happening, that's a new kind of consciousness. But it too is dependently arising. Now it's depending upon perception and it's depending upon the original thing that we saw, consciousness, that was also dependently arising. If we shut our eyes, we wouldn't see it and then we wouldn't be asking questions about it. So now we're digging into our memory and looking and finding out and then to put that together to figure out what's happening. That is what we mean by perception. We're trying to understand what we're taking in as input. And so the input then is not what contacts us, it's what we've made of that input. We perceive that input using old data, even if that data is only five or 10 or 15 seconds old. That's how we know trajectories is because we're watching it right now as it moves along right now, we can see exactly where it's heading. So sometimes yeah. if we're using a uh, recent past, our perception is pretty sharp. If we're using really, really old data, then our trajectories and our perception of how things are headed are going to get off. And so this new kind of consciousness in the Pali is called a Salayatana. The perception is called a Nama Rupa and also a, a Sanya. Um, and uh, uh, the memory systems are called Sankara. You've heard that word before, I'm sure. The Sankara. Oh yeah, definitely. There's a... right. All that old stuff, including some of it is fairly new. And the newer it is, the better it is to use in perception so that we come up with something that's quite accurate because it's really close. Our, our, uh, the output of perception, the salayatana. The word, by the way, sale means to be inside and atana means the senses, the inner senses. And that's what contacts us. And that's what gives rise to feelings, because the feelings are already mixed in with the sankaras. In other words, we feel this time the way we remember that we felt last time this kind of event happened. So if you hear a loud noise as a child and you always duck, and then every time you hear a loud noise, you duck, then when you're an adult and everything happens, now a brand new noise is happening, and we duck because yeah. we're in the habit of ducking. Why? Because we're afraid. Yeah. But if we start listening very closely to what's going on, we can recognize, oh, well, I don't need to duck now. That noise is loud, but it's far away. It missed me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to duck. <laughs> yeah. All right. So this is how these five aggregates are taught as in the sense of there is no self there. There's no self in our memory. There's no self in the, the way that the human mind processes data to come up with an answer. The answer that we come up with is closer and closer now to a self. But the five aggregates themselves, there's no self there. It's just sight and processing and coming up with a solution based upon our past. But the past is malleable, not fixed, no soul to it. No. 
our perception is not fixed. Sometimes we feel like a nut, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we're all over the place, sometimes we're confused, sometimes we're spot on. Our perception is malleable. It's also dependently arising. No self, no soul, no essence of me is there anywhere. And when people begin to hear that, then they can get stop clinging to the concept that there really is a me in here someplace that will survive death. Instead yeah. of recognizing that no, whatever me is, is going to be dead long before the body dies. <laughs> An example yes. of that is, is Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's changes a personality completely. Oh, yeah, I know. They even forget language and vocabulary and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, my grandmother dies from Alzheimer's. So I, They've I been have, doing yeah. it, by the way, for a long time. The word Alzheimer's is a new word for an old problem. They called it dementia. They yeah. called it senility. They called it crazy old age. <laughs> Yeah. So we change the words for it as medical science wants to get their hands on it more and more, make some money off of it. We've got to change the name of it. It's a new product now. <laughs> but the point is, is that the person that was 15 is not the same person as 25, nor the same person at 45 or 75 or 95 that we go through changes, the personality changes. People stop be being a Christian and start being an atheist, then they stop being an atheist and become a Hindu, and then they stop being a Hindu and start being a Buddhist, and then they, if they're lucky, stop being. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so this is why the five aggregates are taught the way that they are, is to work people through the understanding that what I thought of was me does not exist. Yeah. Whatever me is, is dependently arising. Yes, and I find that especially helpful if you have unwholesome thoughts. And if you know that, you can really easily let go because you recognize the, the unwholesome thought. It's not you, it's not your essence. And you just stop doing that and you do something else that's wholesome, positive. It's wholesome, right. Yeah. And make that effort to make that change. Because if, yeah, if you believe that you are these unwholesome thoughts, then uh, you don't want to let go. You're like, no, but I can't. These are my unwholesome thoughts. They are who I am. No, I, but like, In you can just we start stop. arguing. They're not unwholesome. These yes. are my thoughts. Okay? I need them, yeah. I need them, right. <laughs> because who would I be if I didn't think this way? Yeah, exactly. But if, so if you know that um, um, your essence is not to be found in any of these aggregates, uh, then it's a lot easier to, to let go. There's no essence, in fact, anywhere that we're always a moving target. Yeah. And but where which way we move is based upon causes and effects. Many of them could be uh, habits, old sad cars that keep running us in the same circle those sad cars are not me. Because yeah. I behave the way that I used to behave until I'm nudged. But nobody's going to give a nudge to my mind except me. 
Don't yeah. Nudge my mind, and I'm not the same me as I was before. I've changed. Yeah, exactly. I think it's very helpful as well to to realize that you're not your memories, because that means you, you can change from one day to the next if you want to, because you're not bound by your old way of doing things. Mm-hmm. Like literally, this is not me. Like it's gone. It's in the past. Now I'm acting this way. And I'm I have reacting a visual image that I've given students before, and that is imagine that your old past is like what we flush down a toilet and it gets. Oh, I'm losing you, Damarato. Um, can you hear me? Because uh, you froze and I could not hear you anymore. Yes, uh, oh, okay. that's because uh, a bang happened in uh, our neighborhood and the power is now out, but uh, went out, but the power is back on now. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it looks like it's still recording, so. Yeah, it's still recording uh, because this laptop is on battery. Hmm. Oh, there it is. Okay, so it's come back. I was going to turn the Wi-Fi on. All right, so where we're going with this is the five aggregates are uh, an introduction into Paticca Samupada. There are several suttas. One of the better ones is sutta number 22, the simile of the snake. The last half of that... uh, uh, sutta is about the five aggregates, not being the self. And so when people begin to understand that their old ideas of what it was a soul needs to be revisited, now they're capable of beginning to practice the teachings of the Buddha. But so long as we hold the confirmation bias of I am who I am, and subject to the common machine that has a long, slow process, and recognize that I can make some changes right now because I'm not that permanent self. Yeah. And so, in a way, the uh, the the belief in reincarnation and rebirth is the biggest fetter, the number one fetter that people have for practicing correctly. Personality view: Who am I? Yeah, exactly. That's the whole thing. And if people, and so I would go so far as to say is, is that this then becomes the, the introduction into the teachings of the Buddha is to recognize that you are not set, you are not permanent, that you can change. If you don't get that and have the belief that, oh, I'm a soul, I'm a permanent, I'll be reborn, and this and that, then there is no effort to practice correctly. No right, noble effort. We postpone it or we don't make the changes that we need to make. That's what really the whole thing is, is about the change is, are we willing to take the right, noble effort? And if we believe in a soul, then we're not willing to take the right, noble effort. So, it's the number one fetter. If we can't yeah. get over that, then that means that we're stuck in, I can't change. 
And the Eightfold Noble Path is about taking the right effort to change the unwholesome thoughts and the wholesome thoughts, to change our attitude, to change our feelings, to change the way that we think. That's one's right effort applied to the mind, applied to the, uh, to the feelings, applied to the body. We actually have to take the right effort to change the way that we breathe. We have to change our relationship to the body to start paying attention to what the body is doing right now rather than identifying that, oh, I am the body. I am always the same thing. Therefore, I don't have to worry about the body. That way, when something does happen to the body, oh, I got to go to the doctor. I got to go get yeah. help rather than just sitting here and watching the poor body rot. <laughs> Because that's what it's going to do. It's going to sit there and rot. Because it's not permanent. Everything changes. So let's finish this talk with this point of is that we are now fully prepared to talk about Paticca Samuppada, especially in relationship with where does the self come from? Yeah. Why is there so much dukkha involved with it? Because we have it now nailed down firmly that you could change. Yes, I can change. I've been changing, so I can change. I, I am changing. I'm changing itself. Yeah. <laughs> and there I go. <laughs> <laughs> Whoopee, come back again. <laughs> Nothing's permanent here. Yeah. Nothing abides. Everything is temporary. And so I use the phrase, sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. Yeah, definitely. And so let's start watching those changes that, that happen because of the Sankara and decide that we can make changes newly. We can make new changes. All right. right effort. Yeah, nice. Well, thank you very much. So um, I'll call you back to talk about Petitia Samupada then. Yes. Thank you very much right. for this conversation and uh, I'll get back to you soon then. All right. Yes. Thank you, Damarato. Have a good day. Goodbye. Yes, we'll see you. Okay, bye-bye.